Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is Pastor Ben, and you are tuning in to The Daily Word, and I know you're excited about that. We are going through the book of Mark because that's our goal. We're just going to go through the Bible. We're going to take one book at a time and go chapter by chapter. We started in the book of Mark, chapter 1, and today we're going to continue with chapter 2. And so anyways, let's pray as we open the Word of God together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't, I'm just going to read. And again, I probably won't be able to get through all of it today, but we're going to at least get through half of it. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your Word, and we pray today that you would open up our eyes, open up our heart, because what we want is what you want. We pray that you would show us what we need to see, help us to understand your Word, give us grace to walk out the parts of it that apply to us today in the world that we're living. God, we want to please you with all of our life, and we surrender to you now. We thank you. Fill us, Holy Spirit, and help us to see, help us help us to know, help us to walk out the life that you have for us today. Bless all of my friends that are tuning in. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 2. Let me remind you, as we were studying Mark chapter 1, we only got through a little bit of it. We looked at how the book of Mark opened with John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was preparing the way of the Messiah. John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. We saw the Holy Spirit just descended upon Jesus as in the form of a dove. We believe that's called an open heavens. We see that in other passages, other gospel narratives. And so what happens is Jesus then is compelled by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and other gospel accounts fill in what happens there in the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. He overcomes, not only on his own behalf, but on behalf of all humanity. And what we miss was verse 14 uh, through all the way to verse 28, where Jesus goes into Galilee. He begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. Not only that, but he also calls his disciples, Andrew, Simon, uh, John and James, he calls them to walk with him. He calls them out of being fishers of men, or fishers of fish, <laughs> and into being fishers of men. He calls them along his side as his disciples. Later, he would appoint them as apostles. But we miss that part of it. And then also, we see how Jesus uh, begins to heal the crowds and minister to them. And there's several verses in chapter one devoted to that. And as we jump into chapter two, it's really important because it starts with him going back to Capernaum. He's already been there, but this becomes a base of operations for him. So let's go ahead and just read uh, verse 1 through 13, actually, and then we'll uh, probably have to skip the rest of the chapter, and you can read that on your own. And here's what it says. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them, the word of the kingdom. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus, seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out inside of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And I want you to highlight that. They said, we have never seen anything like this. That was the truth. Actually, nobody had ever seen anything like this, and I'll come back around to that. And he, he went out again by the seashore, and he began, uh, all the people were coming to him as he was teaching them. And this is what we read about as Jesus is at Capernaum. There's this account of him he- healing a paralytic. I've taught on this before in Luke chapter 5. As we look at verses 14 all the way through 28, we're going to see the calling of Levi, and then some questions that Jesus gets on the Sabbath. We won't be looking at that today because there's enough ground to cover just in these 13 verses. Now again, the first verse opens up with Jesus comes back to Capernaum, and I've already told you that this becomes a base of operation. And we see that when he's at Capernaum in verse 1, it states that he was at home. Scholars debate as to what this means, but we believe that he was at Peter's house. Now, Capernaum, we're talking about a town that's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter lived. If you ever go with us to Israel or you've been to Israel, you've probably seen Peter's house, which is right there on the northern Sea of Galilee. And you know it's a fishing village. It's a fishing town. And so Jesus goes into this small home, probably Peter's home, And if you've ever seen these homes, they're basically one story and they have a roof and sometimes a small stairway up on the roof. Some of these homes have a little storage room on the roof, but what you're going to find is anywhere from two, three, four, or 500 square feet, an open room is what it looks like. And actually they have a house there right where they believe Peter's house was. I've been there. You can't go inside necessarily, but you can see it. It's about 400 square feet. And so this was a small home. Jesus was in Peter's home, and the crowds had gathered into that house, and it says there was no room. There wasn't even room to get to the doorway. So that sets the scene for what's about to happen. We have to understand that it was so utterly crowded as Jesus was teaching about the Word that nobody could even see into the house. They knew Jesus was there. People wanted to hear from Jesus. They wanted to be healed by Jesus because we just read in chapter 1, or I just reminded you what we didn't read, is that Jesus was healing people, and so they wanted to see this miracle worker. So they're crowding in and around this house, and what we read about here in verse uh, 3 is that there were some people who came bringing a paralytic uh, carried by four men. So you have four men who carry their friend to Jesus, and they're trying to get in. We read here in verse 4, being unable to get him in because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and they had dug an opening and they let down the pallets. So here's what happens. In ancient Palestine, these areas, what you would have is these one floor homes and sometimes a storage room on the top of the roof. Occasionally there was a small staircase. Now it really depends on what kind of home it was, but we're just assuming there was a small staircase. And the men that bring their friend to Jesus, knowing they can't get him in, they're thinking in their mind, somebody's got that mindset, I've gotta get my friend to Jesus. So they go up onto the roof And there were tiles or like these hardened clay pieces that would be 
that would cover these beams on the roof. Often they would use thatch or whatever. So they had to remove these hardened clay tiles. They had to remove all of this thatch in order to create this opening. Now, it's to me, it's kind of fascinating that they would do something like that to somebody else's roof. I can't even imagine what that would feel like, look like, or be like if somebody opened a hole in my roof to lower somebody down. But that's what they did because they really felt compelled to get their friend in front of Jesus. And that's the kind of thinking that I believe God wants us to have, which I'll speak about in just a little bit. But that's what they do, okay? They have to really dig pretty heavily. They have to be pretty demonstrative here They to separate this area away, uh, the roof, and to make a hole. It's not a little thing. It's a big deal. And they're ruining this person's roof because this is not theirs. And so that's what actually had to happen. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we obviously see from this that faith is seen through action. Jesus saw the faith, not of the paralytic necessarily, but he saw the faith of their friends of the paralytic. How did he see that? By what they did. Faith is not just something we have in our minds and our hearts. It is shown through loving action. There is something in our obedience that reveals what's in our heart. I want you to hear that. Something in our obedience, our action, is is indicative of what's in our hearts. So what's in our hearts comes out, whether that's through our words or whether that's through our actions. But make no mistake, that's actually what will happen. Now here's the question. Why would Jesus say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Well, I believe the reason that he said that was because the theology of that day was typically that a person was sick like this. He's paralyzed. He's probably a quadriplegic. And so they're, they're thinking, the friends, maybe even the paralytic, they're thinking that this man is ill, this man is a quadriplegic because of his sins. And that was a typical theological view. And I'm sure they all had this, that some sin in his life caused this. So he's carrying guilt. He's carrying shame. He's questioning his own life. He's questioning his spiritual life. He's questioning his future. All of that's happening to this guy. Everybody around him is questioning him as well. You can imagine what that does for you in society. Not only are you disabled, but also people have this view that you're in this situation because of something that you've done. You may not even know. You wouldn't know what it was because people are born sick. People are born disabled. People are born blind. People are born deaf. But their theology was that if you were born this way or you somehow acquired this sickness, it was because of your sin. So Jesus looks at him because of the faith of his friends and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, why does he do this? Because clearly Jesus is making a claim to deity. What the visceral reaction comes from the scribes or the teachers of the law, and it says in verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Verse 7, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Well, they're right. Nobody can forgive sins but God. But remember this, the fall, which was our disobedience to God, that's our sin, Adam and Eve, and then all of us being human beings are in Adam and Eve. When they sinned, the consequence of that sin was futility, which includes sickness, disease, and all, kind, all matters of, of consequences. So the reason that we have sickness today 
is not just because you or I personally sinned, or if I do one thing bad, then I'm going to have sickness in my life. There might be some credibility to something like that happening on occasion. I'm not suggesting that it isn't the case ever, but I'm saying that primarily the reason that we have sickness, disability, or whatever is because of original sin. If we had not sinned in the beginning, we would be in the perfect state for which God created us. And that is what Jesus came to restore us back to. Jesus came to forgive our sins and restore us to right relationship with our Heavenly Father. The consequences of our disobedience is sickness, disease, and ailment. That's why the book of Revelation says that he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to wipe away sickness. We're going to have glorified bodies, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. What does that mean? That means that our aging bodies, come on somebody, our ailments, our sickness, our disease, God is going to wash and wipe that away. Why do we know that? Because of what he did right here. Acts chapter 10 says that Jesus went around doing good, healing those who were sick, and casting out demons for those who were oppressed. The goodness of God was revealed in the loving action of Jesus to remove sin and sickness off of our lives. When Jesus told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he was saying, I have authority over sickness, which is the consequences of sin, and sin. He forgave his sins, and so they're questioning him. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is blasphemy. No, God is Jesus, and Jesus is God. We believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. And this is really important for us to understand. He was and is the eternal Son. He was not just a man anointed by God. He was fully God and he was fully man. If you or I ever hear somebody say anything different, they are in error. Let me repeat that. If somebody ever suggests that Jesus was just a man anointed by God, they are teaching false doctrine or they have no idea what they're saying. The gospel is extremely clear. A man simply anointed by God could not say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. Only God could live a sinless life. Jesus lived a sinless life. He was born of the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we know that Jesus has the authority to do this. They did not. He is making a divine claim. Jesus does this again and again and again. And you may say, well, Jesus didn't show up necessarily announcing, I'm God the Son, and really clarify the Trinity. No, but he made claim after claim after claim. And this is one of those such claims. And we have to understand that. We have to realize that Jesus was making claims of his deity all over the place. And they knew it, and we need to know it. So the scribes, the teachers of the law, they're quite offended. Jesus is telling them that this is not merely about this man's sin. This is about original sin, which, by the way, Jesus came to conquer. Jesus came to overcome. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for our sin. He died in our place. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died in our place to take our wages, those that would believe upon him. He paid for our sin. That was the payment that was owed for what we have done wrong in humanity. But that doesn't just solve the problem of sin. It actually erases the whole concept of the effects of sin, which is sickness. 
if not in this life, in the next life for sure. And that's why Jesus went around healing people. Healing saying the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. When he preached the kingdom, that's what he was preaching in this moment, he was preaching the rule and the reign of God here and now. He inaugurated the kingdom in his coming and in his ministry. He was showing that something, that a new era had been ushered in with his coming because he was the king of his kingdom. And the rule and reign of God has touched earth. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, this is a different concept than us just praying that we would go to heaven someday. It's Jesus taught us to pray your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like this kingdom realm intersecting with earth. That's what the Garden of Eden was. And Jesus manifested that kingdom when he healed people. And so he's showing, I have authority over sin and sickness. Why? Because I'm the king and I've inaugurated my kingdom. I'm ushering that kingdom in. He's talking to them again and again about repent and believe the good news. Now, the scribes, they're very angry about this, but Jesus does not, he's not bothered at all because he knows who he is, and we know who he is. And so we read about how they're offended, and you go down here now to verse 8. Jesus, immediately, he was aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within them, And he said to them, why are you reasoning about this in your hearts? Now, this shows us that he has this supernatural power. Jesus can know what's in the hearts of people. We see that again and again in the scriptures and the gospel accounts. And here is one of those occasions where he actually can tell what's going on in their minds and hearts. That's just like, woo! (laughs) But Jesus has the ability to do just that. He's omniscient. Come on. He... He knows the past, the present, and the future. He has perfect knowledge about every person on the planet at the same time. Once again, fully God, fully man. He's exercising his power in this moment, and he's trying to reason with the scribes and the teachers of the law using his supernatural discernment. Why are you reasoning this way in your hearts? And he asks them a question. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet? and walk. Why is he asking this question? He's trying to question them. He's trying to help them understand something because he's about to heal the paralytic. Okay, He's about to bring healing power to this quadriplegic. And so what does that mean? He's saying, watch this. Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? He's tying the two together that they're basically equal to a person like him. So he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, verse 10, to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. He's saying, so that you know that I have this authority for which you are calling me out as a blasphemer, I'm telling you, watch this, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk home. And that's exactly what the paralytic does. Jesus shows that he has deity. Jesus is making a divine claim, and then he backs it up with power. Now, it says in the very next verse that the people who saw this were amazed. Not everybody, okay? Not everybody. The scribes and the teachers of the law were not amazed. In fact, they were offended. But I want you to be reminded of this. When they say in verse 12, we have never seen anything like this, the truth is they had never seen anything like this. The last time that Israel or anybody had witnessed miracles was the time of Elisha. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. Think about that for a moment. 
These people had never seen this kind of miracle, period. And they see this credible miracle of a quadriplegic immediately getting up and walking for the first time in his life. They see that and they're still offended at Jesus. Now that's a witness against them is what that is. The people were amazed. The people were like, this must be the Messiah. Everybody's wondering who he is. Everybody's wondering how they should feel now and how they should follow him, how they should treat Jesus. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they're still thinking, man, he's a blasphemer. How in the world could they be thinking that when they know they've never seen credible miracles like Jesus had performed? Not since the time of Elisha. So they were only stories, stories that they read from the Torah, stories that they told their children, stories that hopefully they longed for to see in their day. And here they're seeing it right in front of them, but they cannot receive Jesus. And that is something that's very, very serious. The miracles were a witness against them. Here's a principle. A miracle is not always enough to change a heart. Hearts have to be changed through choice. People have to make the decision to believe. God is constantly knocking on the door of our hearts, but we choose to believe. And sometimes we think, well, if a healing occurs or if a miracle occurs, every person that's ever prayed the prayer, God, if you just get me out of this situation, then I'll follow you. Not always true. Not always true. You know, it's, you know that's the truth. Maybe you prayed that prayer a couple times and you didn't follow him. When God clearly got you out of something, God did something on your behalf, but it wasn't enough for you and it wasn't enough for me to necessarily change our lives. But there are times where God will do miracles, but he does those out of his mercy. He does those out of his love. He does those in response to our prayers, in response to our faith. But those miracles in and of themselves are not always enough to change our hearts. And this is a great example of that very thing. And so what do we learn from this passage today? Well, there are several things. And I just want to point, I just want to point out the people that we see in this situation. You obviously see several different characters in the story. We see Jesus. We see the scribes who are opposing Jesus. We see the paralytic. We see the friends of the paralytic. And we see the crowd. The disciples are obviously there as well. So there are all these different characters. And we always want to focus on Jesus. But I want to point out the four men who carried their friend to Jesus. I want to point that out. I want to give you three points. And I've preached sermons on this passage before. And I just want to make this fresh to us. And the first one is we must work through, or people don't come to Jesus. They are brought to Jesus. We see this in verse 3. I've already read it. But it says they came bringing a to him, a paralytic, their friend, a quadriplegic. The fact is this person would not be able to come to Jesus on his own. And so his friends had to have the compassion and the faith to go and get their friend. It's such love that it was, requ it was required, this love for their friend to go and get him and bring them to Jesus. Everybody else crowded into the home. Everybody else said, I want to get a front row seat at the Jesus conference, right? You couldn't even get to the doorway. It was so crowded. And maybe the friends were like, okay, what's more important is not for us to see Jesus and be on the front row. It's more important that we get our friend who cannot walk in front of Jesus. Because if we get him in front of Jesus, then he might get healed. That requires an incredible amount of love. People are not, they don't come to Jesus, they're brought to Jesus. And spiritually speaking, we've got a lot of friends that may never come into the doors of a church and they may never come to our home group, but we can go to them. And that's what I'm talking about. People do not necessarily come to Jesus or the thing, the Jesus conference. They don't necessarily come to the church, but the church can come to them. 
we can go to people even if people don't come to us. We are the church. We are the called out ones. We are the ecclesia of God. So therefore, we can go in the power of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus, and we can share the love of God with people everywhere. Sometimes what we need to do is we need to think of our friends as those that are spiritually paralyzed and say, if they don't get brought to Jesus, they're not going to come. That's why he sends us back into the world so that we can care for those that he also cares for himself, that he gave his life for. And we see this in the life of these, of these men. That requires an incredible amount of love. The second principle is that we must work through the obstacles to get people to Jesus. We see in verse 4 that they get to the house, they can't get in. Many of us would just give up. we just walk away. Hey, there's no way I can get you in. I'm sorry, friend, you know. So somebody gets the idea, let's open up a hole in the roof. And I love that person. I don't know who that person is, but I love those people. I love the people that have the kind of audacity to just say, let's open up some hole in somebody's roof. Who cares? And then let's lower our friend down, like as if they had enough rope. I mean, they had to think this through. They had to talk about it. Who's going to go up there and pull away a big enough hole in this roof to lower this person down in front of Jesus? Who's going to get the rope? so that we can carefully lower him down. I mean, what if he fell? All of these things that could easily go wrong, but what they're really thinking about is they're thinking about, I've got to get my friend in front of him, and we got to do whatever it takes to get him in front of Jesus. We've got to work through the obstacles, and that really is what faith is all about. Faith is all about us not just going, well, it didn't work out. We got what? What is it going to take? What is it going to take from us to make this thing happen? What is it going to take from us to pray this thing into action? What is it going to take for, for, from us to make sure that we do all that we can possibly do instead of just, well, I tried one time and that's it. We need that enduring faith, don't we? We need that kind of faith that has a duration to it. It's not about the quantity of your faith. It's not about the quality of your faith. It's about the duration of your faith, that persevering faith. Sometimes we're like, I don't have enough faith or my faith's not good enough. Listen to me. Listen to me carefully. It's not always about the quantity. It's not always about the quality. What it is about is the duration of your faith. That endurance is what we need because we're going to have to press through some obstacles in life. And you know that as well as I do. There are things that are going to come up. They're going to stand in between us and what God wants to do. And we cannot allow those obstacles to be the reason that we stop. We've got to see those obstacles as the wall that we need to scale, the mountain that we need to climb because eternity's at stake, people's lives are at stake, and we see a great example in these four men doing what it took. And number three, Jesus sees and responds to our faith for other people. We see this in verse five. It says, Jesus looks up and he sees their faith. He doesn't see the faith of the paralytic. He sees the faith of his friends. That's the thing. Jesus sees our faith for other people. What does it look like? It looks like loving action. Faith always looks like something. It's sacrificial. It's obedient. It's powerful. Jesus sees what we're doing. Jesus sees the prayers that we're praying. Jesus sees the actions that we're taking. Whether it's small, whether it's big, it doesn't matter. It just matters that we're doing something. And let me just tell you, friends, we're living in a time where it's about words and it's not about action. Let me just tell you, more is caught than taught. Our actions matter before God. And so I want to remind you today that the small things that you do matter. The prayers that you pray matter. 
The generosity that's in your hearts towards others matters. The kindness that you give away matters. The serving that you do matters. The extending your time and your effort and your talent and your treasure to somebody else, it matters. The compassion that you show, it matters. That's what it says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He's talking about what does God require of you, O man? He talks about showing mercy. He talks about loving kindness. He talks about doing justice. This is what he's talking about, doing justice. How do we do that? The Holy Spirit gives us opportunities every day. If not every day, every other day. Things are going to come up right in front of us. The question is not, will we have opportunity? The question is, are we seeing the opportunity? Are we seeing the things in front of us to do right? In this moment, I would tell you that these four people are doing justice. They see this profound injustice. Their friend is a quadriplegic and there's nothing they can do for him. They cannot heal him. They don't know what to do. There's nothing, but they hear about somebody that can change the reality of another person. That's Jesus. Jesus is not the medication. Jesus is the cure. And these guys know that. They're thinking if we just get our friend in front of him, his life could change. And so their faith, all of the chips are in the middle of the table. They're banking it all on Jesus. We're going to go get him and we're going to put him in front of Jesus. They work through the obstacles. Their faith is enduring. Their faith is persevering. Their faith is clear. Their faith is evident. Their faith is found in their actions. Love is revealed by action. It cannot just be in mere words. First John tells us that love is not just in words only, but it's in action. And so God will give you and he'll give me opportunities probably every day to do something, whether it's small or big. And the question is, are we seeing it? Are we applying our faith to it? Are we responding to the Holy Spirit? If you ask me, you say, Ben, how do I do justice? How do I do right by other people? How do I become more compassionate? You have to act. You and I have to act. You say, well, Ben, I don't know what to do. Yeah, you do. What you and I need to do is we need to ask God every day when we wake up in the morning, open my eyes and help me to see injustice around me. Help me to see people that I encounter. Help me to see the needs that are in front of me. And Lord, give me the grace to walk out what you are saying to me. Give me the faith to press in and to press on, to believe you to do great and mighty things. Give me everything that I need to address the needs that are in front of my life. What we've got to stop doing is closing our eyes. It's too easy to do that. It's too easy for us to go from point A to point B and not consider the people in front of us. If you're frustrated and you say, Ben, everybody's telling me that I got to do something. Everybody's saying that we got to do justice. Everybody's saying that we've got to address the needs in our lives and do something and do this. What am I supposed to do? Don't be frustrated. Don't be frustrated. What you and I need to do is ask God to open our eyes. Ask God to open our hearts, and when we wake up in the morning, let me tell you what, the Holy Spirit is going to give us opportunities that day to do something that's right and righteous, that brings justice into the world. What we need to make sure that we're not doing is closing our eyes. That's what the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are multiple accounts where the prophets were rebuking the people of God because they had become numb. And so, and when you're numb, you have no feeling, right? You have no feeling. You can't feel the pain you can't feel, you can't feel, you don't know what's going on, you have no sensation, you're not in touch with, with that thing that you need to be feeling. So we cannot be numb. There's a prophet that actually rebuked Israel. He rebuked the people of God because they had grown numb. We've got to resist the numbness of our world because right now it's easy to become numb. It's easy to treat others the way that they're treating us. It's easy to just respond 
in the ways of the world because the world is certainly responding that way, but not for us. We're the people of Jesus Christ. And so we want to follow his way. He looks at these four men and he says, your faith, your faith. He talks about their faith. See, this is what we want. We don't need anybody to grab a camera and take a picture of the things we're doing. We just need to do small and big things to show that Jesus is Lord, that his righteousness is what we're all about, that justice is what we're all about, because we're just addressing what he introduces into our life and we're not turning our eyes from it. That's all you got to do. Wake up in the morning, God, show me what you want me to do and help me to not be numb to it. And you and I will do justice every day of our life because we are following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, which is in keeping with what Jesus did and how Jesus lived. If we want to be like Christ, then we need to open our eyes to the world and we need to address the needs that are in front of us. We just don't turn away. That's what Christians don't do. The world might turn away. The world might get bitter. That's what I did before I was a Christian, but no more. I cannot allow that in my life as a Christian. And so we see a great example in these four men. We see a profound uh, miracle that God performs. We see a confrontation with the religious community. And which one do we want to be? Well, we want to be the four that brought their friend to Jesus. And that's what I want to pray for today. I want to encourage you to be like those four because Jesus saw their faith and responded to it. And we can expect, we can believe that Jesus is going to see our faith and he's going to respond to our faith for other people. I want to encourage you with that today. Let's just pray for divine appointments that God would give us in the life that we live, in the world that we live in, because you know what? He's going to give them to us. So let's pray for them right now. This is like 8.30 a.m. We got a whole day ahead of us, and I believe God will give us all kinds of opportunities as we pray. And so pray with me right now for that very thing to happen. Father, we do thank you today for your word. We thank you for the example of these men. We thank you, Lord, that we're just like them and you respond to our faith. Lord, we ask for enduring faith, to believe, for healing, for deliverance, for salvation, for the people that we come across. And I pray that you would open our eyes, that where there's numbness, that you would give us compassion. Lord, help us to do justice. Help us to love righteousness. Help us to show mercy. Father, we pray that you would give us everything we need today. Give us divine appointments. Give us opportunities. Put into our hands, into our hearts, what we need to address the needs in the world around us. Lord, we thank you that we're going to intersect with people today that we can minister to. Help us to not turn away, but turn towards those that your heart is already bent towards because you're touching people all over the place. And we want to be on mission with you today, just like we see in this story. We thank you that you're the God that does miracles. You're the God that heals bodies. You're the, you're the God that sets people free. You're the God that brings salvation And so, Lord, we enter into your mission today, and I pray that you would encourage everybody that's tuning in live, bless and strengthen us as we set our hand to your kingdom work. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.